0: If we're going to start seeing like high value NFTs migrating to Bitcoin over Ethereum, like how Ethereum had CryptoPunks, like I could see something like Node Monkeys or maybe it's the Frogs being the actual like the blue chip NFT of this cycle. And um, my cat just screamed in the background, but... Uh, <laughs>
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. March is just around the corner, and I wanted to make sure to give you a quick reminder to not top-tick your prices of your DAS London tickets. If you use codes 0X10 at checkout, you can lock in a 10% discount on your ticket. Don't miss out on your chance to get ahead of the curve. I'll see you in London.
2: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. The Blockworks Research team is back to bring you another episode of an analyst roundtable. This week, we are joined by Ren and Zero X Pibbles, and today is January 8th. Dan, why don't you kick us off with a little bit of uh, what's going on in the market with the news segment?
1: Yeah, for sure. It's uh, We're recording this on Monday to the 8th, and we haven't heard any approval ETF news yet. But of course, the last week, I mean, the last few months, but really in the last week, it's been nonstop ETF news. Um, so shout out to the Bloomberg fellows, Eric and uh, James. They They keep me up to date with what's actually going on. Uh and there's another guy Scott. I I need to tag all three of them in the show notes for this episode just because I found them super super helpful. Uh, obviously I spend no time in the infrastructure level of e- the e- ETF market, so it's been useful to know uh, what these filings means, what these filings mean as they come in and kind of where we are in the market. So, you know, they've been calling 90% for a while. Uh I think recently that's probably been bumped up to like 95% and now we're somewhere hovering around 99%. The, it seems like all of the filing level work is done at this point. We just got updated fee metrics for, I think, all 11 of the issuers. Um, and that's really what the the latest round of news that came through today was, was exactly about the fees. So we st- we saw pretty good price war going on here, which is very interesting that we'll get into. But quickly on the numbers, um, you know, it seems that fees are ranging somewhere between like 20 bips and 50 bps uh, on AUM and that... Uh, this—I uh, don't quote me on this—but I looked. I did. I literally googled this. So again, don't quote me on this. But it seems that uh, the way they charge fees on ETFs is by decreasing the AUM by the daily fee rate. Uh, so obviously, the headline numbers are annualized, but taking the daily fee rate and decreasing the AUM. So the the or excuse me the uh, the net net asset value, which is the redeemable value of the share. Uh, so that kind of is interesting to see that it gets accrued on a daily basis. Um, but nonetheless, you know we're, we're ranging between 0.2% uh, and 0.5% with Bitwise coming in at the low end of 0.24%. Um, a lot of these guys are waiving fees for the first six months or until they hit a AUM uh, milestone, which is pretty interesting. And that's really the question right now is now that we've seen that they're all low-priced fees, this means that everyone has to sell the shit out of these things to make any money on them. And that's kind of why I think Bitwise probably went with the the lowest end of the spectrum. You know, we'll have to get those guys back on here some point down the line and, and talk to them. But my reading the tea leaves of their actions being the lowest uh, priced ETF is this could be a huge marketing thing for them. They could use this fund, uh, you know, if they do win out in the market, then they can use their fund uh, to kind of win the marketing war in some sense. And and this helps them sell other business. Uh, whereas maybe somebody like BlackRock, I think their fees were around point. Three, I want to say I'm not looking at the table right now. So if anyone has that up, please chime in. But somewhere around the neighborhood of 0.3%. And they, you know, they want to make money off this. That's their goal. They don't need this to be a marketing tool. This is just another uh, weapon in the belt, if you will, for them to make money, for them to make money. Uh, but with fees this, this low as a whole, again, they're going to ha- everyone's going to be selling the hell out of this, this ETF, um, which is, you know, there's long crypto twitter has long wanted TradFi to come and show their bags and it really does seem like we are in that era now
3: yeah i think all right it's loading um but black fee is down to sorry i'm doing this live it's 0.2 percent after the uh before the waiver but 0.3 percent normally so so pretty low um i think out of all of these, probably the shocker is Grayscale. Uh, They're choosing to have a fee of 1.5%, which is like basically an order of magnitude larger than everyone else. But you have to remember that Grayscale has 27 billion in AUM in their GBTC product. And they're basically making a bet that not a lot of people are going to switch their ETF issuer. I'm not sure how true that is, especially if it's like I just go to my brokerage account. I click like redeem and I click like I want to ape into this other ETF. Uh, But I think they'll probably milk it for a while given that BlackRock's probably going to win this competition. I mean, like if you're a crowdfunding institution, BlackRock is like the like big crowdfunding institution. Like they might as well be the forefront of the government at this point. And so you can't really compete with them on like sort of the brand name there. And so you you just milk your existing holders for a while. I know Gary Gensler tweeted this morning about the risk of investing in crypto assets, and to me that really makes it seem like a done deal. Um, the deadline this morning was 8 a.m. Eastern for any last minute filings, so they probably need some time to go through all of the filings to make sure there's nothing wrong. But you know, there's only really two more days left for the SEC to come out and make a decision for all of this. I think another interesting tweet that I saw from maybe Mike was that like everyone's going to lower the fees on the Bitcoin ETF, but then they're going to use that as a gateway for higher fees on other ETFs, whether that's like a Ethereum ETF or say like a Solana or like an Avalanche or like a Matic ETF, and those would be higher fees, whereas like sort of The Bitcoin ETF is kind of like your $5 rotisserie three chicken at Costco, you know. Um, So yeah, just a few points.
2: Yeah, it's interesting too. Everyone's already jumping to the ETH ETF narrative, kind of sealing the deal on the Bitcoin one. I think it would be kind of ironic if, uh, you know, that that ends up not actually getting approved. Um, I think that could just be like a really bearish headwind that people are really calculating is like... A bullish tailwind, um, but I, I really don't think an ETH ETF is like solidified at all at this point. Not saying anyone is saying that it is. I just know a lot of people are banking on that becoming a narrative.
1: Don't kill our hopes and dreams like that. It not only will it be an ETH ETF, but it'll be a staked ETH ETF generating yield, which is true tradfi cream of the crop. So that's what we're going to get. Ah, uh, but
2: get the Bitwise guys back on.
1: Yeah, I know. I'd love to get their take because last time we had them on, we asked something to the effect of like, all right, you know, last year was we only care about Bitcoin. Now it's expanded to, okay, this E thing sounds cool. And so like the next logical expansion of that is, oh, this yield on this E thing sounds cool. But last time we chatted with them, they're like, no, like we're not there yet. Right now, if you're allocating to crypto, it's like sub 5% of your portfolio. And like only a portion of that would be ETH. And you're buying, you know, say that ETH is a half percent of your portfolio. That's being bought to go to 1% or 0%, right? You're trying to dr- double your, your your value. And if you don't do that, like Whatever, and so you're not. If you're going for a hundred percent gain, you don't really care to get three percent yield on that. So that was kind of their take on it, which I do get with. Uh, I, I can get behind that, but over the long run, I think you know that'll slowly transition into people becoming more and more degenerate, as we've seen in this market very closely. Moving on, we have EtherScan acquired SoulScan. So SoulScan is one of the more popular block explorers on Solana. And of course, Etherscan is the block explorer for Ethereum uh, and most of Ethereum or EVM related uh, chains. And so everyone's super comfortable with using Etherscan. Solscan isn't great, uh, but it does sort of have a bit of a, the network effects. And so a lot of people are saying, all right, well, I know I know and love Etherscan. Now they bought Solscan. So maybe I can actually, for once in my life, read a Solana block explorer. Uh, you know, that's kind of interesting because... I've spent a lot of time in the Solana data and I've touched every single block explorer out there. I will say uh, Solana FM recent, recently released their latest block explorer, which is a revamp from the first thing they had. Uh, it's called Quantum and it is 10 out of 10. That's pr- my personal favorite block explorer. I do recommend you check it out if you're trying to understand Solana transactions or something that happened on chain. Uh, but I will say uh, on the whole, Solana is just a completely different sh- constructor, right? It's, it really is the easy EVM versus the SVM. It, it's just totally different. And so when you're going and using these block explores, you can't just like, even though Etherscan acquired SolScan, yeah, maybe the UI looks a little friendlier or something you're familiar with, but understanding the, how the value moved through that transaction is truly just totally different. Um, so it, it does kind of take a new skill that just requires repetition in the same way everybody learned how to use Etherscan.
2: I didn't realize that EtherScan was so well funded that they could actually do like an acquisition of sorts. Like I kind of thought like, I know this is like not really the case anymore, but Wikipedia back in the day was like maybe going to shut down because they didn't have enough money, but now they just keep that like donate or this is going to get shut down button there into perpetuity. And they really are well funded. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess I just thought the Etherscan was like more of a public good. But looking back in hindsight, I'd be curious to see the amount of grants they've gotten from like the Optimism Foundation and the retroactive public goods funding and like other sorts of revenue that they've been able to bring in. Because aside from the API that's paid that they had, I, I just didn't know they had like a sustainable long term business model. So that's pretty cool to see, actually.
1: Yeah, I've uh, I've personally used the API and it works great. But Again, I, I didn't really know. I know they charge like chains like uh not too long ago, Avalanche was the one that pivoted off of the Etherscan for in favor of the route scan deployment built by oh gosh, I feel terrible blanking on their name, but it is route scan. Uh Jack is I think the the CEO over there. He's he's the man. Um, so I think that was driven by the high cost to have an etherscan deployment. Um and RouteScan scan is honestly a great deployment as well i'm a fan of what that team has built uh with the new avalanche explorer uh, so would recommend checking that out so it'll be interesting to see how that kind of goes forward but nonetheless moving on we have starknet community has voted yes to activate starknet v version 0.13 uh, which makes the strk the stark token eligible as a gas token um, surely this is like the first step in the path to launching the token Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if that actually goes live. But I personally have never used StarkNet. I'm maybe outing myself a bit, but uh, now there's so many damn L2s, it takes a dedicated effort to go explore a new chain, Um, and that's true for every chain. So I've personally spent my time going to other new chains over in the Cosmos using Solana and the different applications over there uh, that I've actually never made it over to StarkNet. And also part of that is it's, along with ZK Sync, it is so heavily farmed that it's like, all right, like it's not even worth the personal time to try to go farm this myself. I'd actually be going to use an interesting application over there, uh, which is another problem for StarkNet. So I'm curious if anyone has any counter counter arguments to that one.
0: I almost went over there and bought that AL token when it was like 300k. But then I saw you had to set up a new wallet. I said, maybe this weekend. And then I ran. So that's my StarkNet experience of not going over there. I'm
3: curious if any other chains, especially like major L2 slash rollups are going to start allowing use of like their own like native token, whether that's like ARB for Arbitrum or OP for Optimism. My gut feeling is no, because that complicates things, especially in terms of like gas management. You know, you need to have enough ETH uh, on like the contract on the L1 to pay for whatever fees you pay as a rollup. And then you need like, Manage the arb or like OP, it just seems intuitively a lot easier to receive your revenue in ETH and also pay it out in ETH. But on the other hand, you could also make this argument that you know, for example, if you turn the gas token into your native token like arb, then people may view may view it as like better value accrual because there's more like buying pressure, even though you would basically need to sell that. <laughs> for ETH in order to pay off the cost on the L1. So I think none have strong opinion on this. I think
2: it helps give the token a form of money and also an incentivization to provide like deep liquidity on the L2 for that native token. So I think there's a lot of benefits, even though underneath the hood, it's literally the exact same thing as using ETH. It's just like a UX and I guess like narrative thing.
1: Yeah, I, I think we're going to see a lot more of this too, right? Because, you know, if you play out the... Roll the rash driven, you know, roll up as a service driven uh, launches that are coming on a long enough time horizon, not even that long, even in the next two quarters. We're going to have hundreds, if not thousands, of more roll ups, and each of those will likely have their own token. Um, And so, now what? Like, if you're launching your own roll up, you have to make this UX decision and this utility decision around your token. Is it just some pure pseudo equity token? or is it some like utility driven form of money, or is it somewhere in the middle? Uh, And we haven't really seen L2s on the whole figure out what model is going to work. So I I think it's a net positive if it's just an option to execute uh, transactions, which it seems like this is the case. But if I was launching a new role today, I would absolutely not make the sole gas token my own token. That sounds like an absolute nightmare. Now, if you have thousands of rollups, you have thousands of tokens that you have to own and can't interact with. And everybody's been stuck in that position where you send assets to a new chain uh, because you're quickly trying to buy something or just trying to, honestly, you're not even in a rush. And then you send your USDC there first or whatever. uh, And now you don't have the gas token. you are like, fuck, I got to run another transaction just to be able to use this thing. Um, So I think it's a net positive if you're doing some sort of account abstraction model and it's just an additional gas token. Um, but I, I'm pretty against it if it's just going to be the sole token. Uh, but I guess the real point there is L2s are going to have to figure out, or roll ups on the whole are going to have to figure out what their token is trying to do. In, in my personal view, I think we're going to see a very small number of tokens get this like money like valuation uh, where it's a bit of a head scratcher as to how it gets that valuation. It's more of like a commodity, it's very driven by demand and supply. You know, thinking Bitcoin, ETH. And then maybe either Solana or Tia, like that's kind of the direction I see that going. And then you're going to get like these L2s, like say Arbitrum, Optimism, or even some of the more modular ones like Eclipse uh, or anything launching on a RAS provider. Like you're probably going to see a more like pseudo equity token where maybe you're, collecting profits from user transactions and redistributing those to to users or something like that's kind of the direction I think about it, but curious if you guys have any thoughts on what L2 tokens or roll up tokens more generally should be how, how people should think about like what those tokens do.
2: Personally speaking, I think they make a lot of sense to decentralize a sequencer set. I also would like to see more collaboration between the l2's native token and like core developers and actual dApp developers like i think it would be cool if there's some Perps protocol let's say and you stake the native token to get some yield but then if you also have that l2's native token stake then you get a boost i just think that'd be a good way to align the two together and like considering you're going to be getting grants as a project in the native token it makes sense to give value to that native token so that way your incentives are worth more But I think we're like very much in like innings one and two in like
3: the design space for L two tokens and bringing them utility. I think tokens overall, I feel like this isn't that like explored yet. But tokens should be seen sometimes as like membership tokens, so to say. So I know like we keep on having this running joke that like if you have like X amount of shares of like Apple, you should be able to buy like an iPhone at like a. 5% 5% discount, or if you own, like, I don't know, like, one share of Tesla, you should be able to put on, you should be put on, like, the newest Tesla model, like, waitlist. And I, I kind of think that model makes a lot of sense, whether you are, like, an L2 or a DAB. So, some ways I see this potentially paying out, I'm not sure how possible it is, actually, Um, but you stake, like, a certain number of, like, ARP tokens or OP tokens, and if you hit a certain threshold, you get, like, a 10% fee discount. If you hit the next threshold, you get, like, a free discount and if you hit like the crazy VIP mega whale threshold you get like a 50% discount and obviously like someone will have to run the numbers and make sure that the L2 itself remains like net profitable but I do think like people should start thinking about that and I agree with Sam that just like decentralizing a sequencer set is probably like the next large utility of like an L2 token beyond governance.
1: Yeah, Ren, I think those are great points as well. And speaking of tokens, we have two more airdrops that have been announced. First was the Manta airdrop. Uh, So Manta is a roll-up built through Caldera, is a roll-up as a service uh, provider or a RAS provider. uh, And they are using the OP stack as well. And so they just announced their token airdrop, and that will be going to Tia Stakers. Tia Stakers are consistently winning here. Uh, I don't know if this is is almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy of Tia Stakers getting these airdrops. Like Crypto Twitter really spoke this one into existence, uh, which is pretty funny to see. And the other one we heard was the XAI airdrop, which is an Arbitrum orbit train. And this one will be claimable on Tuesday. So this is a pretty hyped gaming specific chain. Sam, I know you were pretty excited about this one. So can you shed some extra light on XAI?
2: Yeah, for sure. It's just a uh, Arbitrum Orbit L3. And I think they're actually dabbling in some parallel processing now. I know it's like a really early stage product. And um, they basically did like a century node sale because they're really trying to lean into like the decentralized validator set type deal and those keys are going for you know 10x what they were uh initially on the node sale so very hyped project i know a lot of people on our team have been looking at it a lot closer than i have i think arbitrum makes a lot of sense especially as an l3 for a gaming ecosystem considering the amount of liquidity and users there but uh yeah you know how gaming is it takes a lot of time to build out a good game and i know all of us are still waiting for that that first killer game that we all want to play every day and get super lost in
1: yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot to be excited about on the gaming front. Um, we're, we're still so early. would give a self plug to our episode with Scott Sonardo, uh, the co-founder of Argus. That is a phenomenal episode. Uh, really gives a good overview of what they're building and why it's relevant for people building crypto games. Uh, but maybe we move on to a segment of Hot Seat Cool Throne. Uh, let's go, Ren. I'll throw things over to you first, man. What do you got?
3: Sure, I have a hot seat this week. Um, it's LRT Mania. I feel like every day I log on to Twitter, I see like a new restaking protocol with some new version of points programs. And I, I wouldn't say like I have any like gripes, it's just like the market doing market things and people giving what people want, um, uh, especially in terms of point. But it seems like no one really has a clear idea of like the risk around like LRTs and sort of restaking as a whole. And no one really has figured out like composability, right? Like just looking off this list, there's like Renzo protocol, there's out there's Azure.Fi, there's Restake Finance, there's Power Finance, there's Rio Network, and there's probably like a few more that I'm missing. You know, it's just a lot of LRT, LRT protocols. Each of them have their own liquid restaking token. And... Each one of these liquid restaking tokens has a different node operator set, or like is helping to validate different AVSs, you know. And so you reach this point where each LRT represents. Different level of risk, and thus theoretically, like each LRT should be priced differently. And then you need to start thinking about like liquidity for these LRTs on decentralized exchanges. So whereas, if you compare that to like liquid staking tokens, right, like those are pretty easy to compare because they're only really doing one thing, they're helping to secure like the core Ethereum protocols through like the proof of stake chain. Whereas for these LRTs, you know, right now they're technically not even doing anything, like no if EF- whether that's like natively restaked in eigenlayer or like any LST that's staked in eigenlayers, they're not like securing anything because AVSs aren't live, eigenDA isn't live. So they're just like sitting there, but they're cooking points though. Um, But it just feels like a really messy situation. I feel like at some point we're going to need like an L2 beat for LRTs just to disclose like every single risk, whether that's like slashing risk or like node operator risk around a specific LRT token you're holding and i think at some point i don't want to say this is going to implode but it's going to reach like a serious tipping point right something's going to happen there's going to be a lot of drama on the timeline the slashing company is going to have to make like probably the largest like social consensus decision that ethereum has ever seen whether that's i don't know like a bridge blowing up or like an oracle doing like something wacky um to be honest i don't have a good solution launching, like, an LRT protocol is just, like, something that was very, very obvious, and you know would be coming, and it's kind of like the early AUM wars of, like, the BTC ETF, like, before, like, the ETF is launched, everyone wants to line up, like, the AUM to be, like, the go-to player, and there's obvious network effects that come into play once you have a larger LRT, especially in terms of, like, whether that's incentives or, like, DEX liquidity. Um, But, yeah, people should probably start thinking about, like, risk-trenching what exposure you have to uh, while holding it out to but don't just ape and it for the points
1: <laughs> yeah it was uh will sheehan had uh the he's the founder of parsec finance it's a great uh data-driven platform for on-chain data and he had a great tweet the other day that was uh like something to the effect of permissionless markets are going to be permissionless and people are going to build things whether you want them to or not uh the point being that blockchains gr- their superpower of the superpower of blockchains is, is quite simple. It's transparency. You can now see where the risk is building up in the in the system, and have that be a factor in your decision making process uh, on on whether or not you participate in this ecosystem. Right. So, if we this is probably a really silly comparison, but just bear with me for a second. So, housing crisis of two thousand eight. There weren't that many people that knew this was becoming a problem until after the problem had exploded Uh, but if you kind of map that same logic onto you know uh, just adding leverage into the system uh, for eigenlayer and this restaking narrative then at least you can see and measure the risk in real time of course we don't really know what those risk boundaries are like at what point are we in the extreme danger zone, right? Like that's kind of a a touch and feel thing rather than like being able to, because we haven't experienced something like this before. Um, For me, I'm still honestly a little bit confused on like what risks Eigenlayer poses, right? Like, okay. So the mass mass slashing events seem you know, surface level, very dangerous, but I don't get how that, like, let's say there's a mass slashing event on eigenlayer. How does that end up impacting Ethereum? Because to me, that would be where the issues lie. So Ryan, I, I hope you, can you provide any unpacking on this question? Because to me, it'd be like the other way around. So these LSTs have ETH secured by validators on chain. If there was a mass slashing event on the Ethereum base layer, then I see how like, the, the risk would flow upstream because now all of these tokens that are securing things are all of a sudden less valuable. And so you have less security. And like that. I could see the issue flowing upstream, but I don't really get how it would flow back downstream to Ethereum. Um, I'd never admittedly read Vitalik's like, don't uh, over-leverage Ethereum consensus post, but I, I would guess the answer is awaiting for me in there. Rand, do you have any clarity on that? I would
3: say that I don't have a huge amount of clarity to end. Whatever I say next, please double check my answer. Um, but for example, if like a slashing event occurs on Eigenlayer, realistically for the next one or two years, um, the first thing that will happen is whether the slashing committee decides that they want to sort of go ahead with the slashing. I think the slashing committee is formed of 12 individuals and they have the power to veto. Any sashing and basically say, okay, this sashing isn't happening, just we, we go back to normal. But for example, if a sashing did occur, right, and say it was specific for one AVS, then theoretically, either like the native ETH that's been restaked into Eigenlayer or the LSTs, like those withdrawal keys, like it's not actually stashed in the sense of like Ethereum stashing, where it's like burned and just disappears off the face of the earth. It's more so that someone is basically holds like access to that underlying ETH and they're able to like if they wanted to burn it, but if not, like for example, they could take it, redeem the LST, and use it as compensation for an attack that occurred on their middleware protocol, for example, right? So technically. It's not like the amount of Eve securing the base like layer of Ethereum disappears. It's not burned. Um, but theoretically it should be taken away from the amount of Eve that's basically like securing Ethereum as a base layer, if that makes sense. Um so either way, if a sashing event happens, I do think it quote unquote decreases like the amount of economic security of Ethereum.
1: Oh, a slashing event on on eigenlayer.: okay. Yeah,
3: It does theoretically decrease the economic security of Eve that's like securing Ethereum. But I also think you see a world where it's possible that like there's a lot of people that have exposure to an LRT, and that's not securing Ethereum, but you are just securing like eigenlayer ABSs. I'm not sure what that like breakdown looks like. It's all a bit messy. To be honest but if you ask anybody today that's like a normal crypto participant like how do you define risk or how do you define the amount of leverage in the system from eigenlayer right i don't think anyone has a good answer <laughs> and i i think someone should probably start working on like a transparent way to track that i'm sure there's like researchers like working on that question right now, um, but just like a transparent way for like normies to understand that question would also be really, really good because like no one has any clue what's going on realistically right now.
1: I definitely agree with you that transparency is only valuable if we know how to interpret the data that we're looking at. Uh, and that's a bit of an unanswered question. So who knows, maybe we'll spend our time doing that, but I've, I'm gonna throw another curveball at you. So. If I'm a solo staker and I solo stake and restake through Eigenlayer, I know I like give. I have to like essentially deposit my withdrawal key to Eigenlayer. Where do those keys go? And what happens if I get fully slashed? Like, do they just burn the withdrawal keys? If you get fully stashed on Eigenlayer, or yeah. If
3: you get fully stashed on I can, if you get slashed on eigenlayer as like a solo staker so you're basically giving like the withdrawal credentials and pointing that to the eigenlayer contract i don't think you have to because there's like partial withdrawals and there's full withdrawals so i'm not sure how it works if you get like slash say like 10 eve. <laughs> like would you just have to like withdraw that Okay, say, say you're at a solo staker, you have 32 ETH, um, which is like the sort of like the minimum balance for an Ethereum Validator today. You restake that into Eigenlayer by pointing or withdrawing credentials to the Eigenlayer contract, and some stashing event happens for 10 ETH, right? I don't think you can withdraw 10 ETH as like an Ethereum Validator today, it's either like all or nothing. Um And either way, like if we withdraw 10 ETH, your balance goes from 32 ETH to 22 ETH, right? And you wouldn't be an Ethereum validator anymore because there's a 32 ETH minimum.
1: Right, but I think what would happen is when I, let's say I got slashed for 10 ETH as the validator, then when I go to withdraw, uh, the, the 32 ETH would move from the beacon chain to the Eigenlayer smart contract on Ethereum, and then I'd only get 22 back.
3: Yeah, I think that's what would happen. And Eigenlayer would keep the 10 to... Do whatever they want with it whether that's like compensating abs for like something that went wrong or anything
1: else but in the example of the full slash right then i am running a box in my basement that is validating the chain that is still an active validator even though i've been slashed and is now like worthless to me so doesn't that create like i don't know if they instantly withdraw like kick you from the queue if you get or from the active set, if you get slashed, like because they do own the withdrawal keys, so theoretically you get full slashed and then immediately get ejected. Gotcha. Um, I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but that seems like a problem. I'm sure they've definitely thought about this. Uh, we just don't know the answer. We might yeah,
3: I, I've definitely like read something about this before. Like, how does the core Ethereum protocol know that a slashing event occurred on EigenLayer? And there's definitely an answer for this. I just cannot remember it off the top of my head.
2: And on top of all of that stuff that you guys just talked about which is much more technical i'm honestly concerned about just pegs i mean even during uh may of 2022 if i'm remembering my dates correctly when like ftx and everything and D uh, pegged like that thing went down to like 88 cents so, like if you're taking a derivative on top of a restaked lst like that can get ugly pretty quickly and i think that's the most probable outcome for like just In terms of like poor UX and something people are more likely to run into, I think that these pegs are going to be pretty tough to maintain.
3: I'll double down on what Sam mentioned there. I think the looped leverage like stake deep trade where you just like loop stake deep on Aave or some other like lending market infinitely didn't really exist last cycle. And I guarantee you that like if an LRT has significant network effects or like significant amount of liquidity then a money market will list it and at some point right we're gonna tough uh for this market cycle and everyone's gonna want to like sell back their e for usdc and all of those like stake the for like leverage do like rt's whatever like all of that's gonna need to be unwinded or unwound and there's just not gonna be enough liquidity on chain and i think we're gonna see like this like black swan event at some point where like pegs go like pretty disgustingly low i think they recover like pretty fast but i do think at some point there will there'll be like a pretty big debugging event probably towards the later stage of the market cycle near the top also i think another thing with eigenlayer is that like fees right you know like you have maybe your node operator charging fees and maybe like eigenlayer is going to charge fees and then your LRT protocol is gonna charge fees. Like at some point it's probably gonna add up to like 15% on all of the rewards. And I I feel like there's probably not gonna be a lot of transparency around those fees, too. So there there's a lot of open questions. Like node operators are gonna need to choose what ABS is to run. Stakers are gonna have to choose like how to measure their yield. Do they want it in like US dollar basis or like do they wanna compare everything to Eve? Igonator is going to support dual token staking. So, you know, like maybe some node operators are going to have to restake ETH and also like the native token and operators, for example, are going to run into their own challenges where they may need to charge higher fees depending on the complexity of the AVSs that they choose to participate in, right? So say like one AVS has like a crazy high validator hardware requirement that requires like 10x the OPEX, right? Whereas another AVS has like a normal amount of objects, How do you like select like a gen- generic fee for your LRT? You know, there's just like a lot of questions that remain to be answered. I'm sure the answers are out there, but not a lot of people have a good idea.
1: Yeah. And that could honestly be an interesting top signal for the for the upcoming cycle. I, uh, it'll probably be a late one and one you wish you knew before it happened, but uh, an eigenlayer like AVS blow up or a huge slashing event or restaking drama is probably something we see at the top of the cycle. What's up everyone, March is approaching fast and I wanna give you another reminder not to miss out on DAS London. It is coming, it's right around the corner and it's in March from the 18th to the 20th. We have three full days of content. This is your chance to bump shoulders with some of the world's top executives and have open dialogue with both attendees and speakers. We're going to be focusing on a range of topics that I'll let Ren discuss for you. First
3: on the list, we have Bitcoin Catalyst, the Halving and Spot ETF. Next, we have a view from the buy side from investors on things like strategy, portfolio allocation, and more. We also have a topic on RWA's tokenization and stable points, which I think we can all agree are going to play a large role in crypto's future. We'll also talk about global regulatory frameworks like compliance best practices and the evolution of global standards that are shaping the global investment landscape. We'll also have someone from an institutional fund to talk about infrastructure such as banking and payments with financial giants like Visa and JP Morgan. And last on the list, the macro case for digital assets. So don't miss out on this monumental event. Seats are limited. So be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you
1: in London. But 0x Pibbles, who you got in the hot seat or cool throne this week?
0: Yeah, so far away from the tech that's been in the hot seat, uh, I'm talking about Node Monkeys as the cool throne, and it's very simple, depixelated monkey picture. Um, they they did super well over the past two weeks. It was a super nice uh, minting experience, but they've done about 45 million volume in two weeks, and floor peaked around like 12k per monkey. They're sitting like 10k per monkey now. But um, I think it's like a it's a really cool experiment on Bitcoin to see like if we're going to start seeing like high value NFTs migrating to Bitcoin over Ethereum, like how Ethereum had CryptoPunks. Like I could see something like Node Monkeys or maybe it's the frogs being the actual like the blue chip NFT of this cycle. And yeah. Um, my cat just screamed in the background. But uh, so we have like the, one of the co-founders of Yuga Labs bought a monkey and posted it. And like right after he tweeted about it, like they just started ripping some more. And it's funny because like the history of Node Monkeys was not great. So they they inscribed the monkeys between like the 80K, 110K sat range in February of 2023. They didn't launch till December because they wanted the infrastructure to get built out a lot better because it was freaking awful to do anything on Bitcoin back then um so there's like it was originally supposed to be a free mint and then they claimed that someone offered them five million seed funding and they denied it and they're like no it's a free mint and they're like wait we're gonna do a paid mint and we're gonna donate everything to charity and then they went back on that too and then they did a paid mint that's a Dutch auction and they gave like a percentage to charity. I think I'm not really sure. Um, but overall, like node monkeys being the most successful profile picture on Bitcoin is a super interesting way to start off the year, especially with the ETF coming in. And I'm really excited to see like how the Bitcoin NFT ecosystem or, or ecosystem continues to grow throughout the year.
1: You mentioned it was a super smooth uh, like I think it was a Dutch auction. Can you talk just a bit about what that looked like and like how does that work on Bitcoin considering there's no smart contracts?
0: Yeah, so it was like a highly centralized Dutch auction, um, but it started with at like maybe like 0. 0.8 Bitcoin or 1 Bitcoin it was like the starting price and it would decline like every few blocks. And once you paid whatever the like the closing price of the monkeys when they sold out was that's the price that you got anything over was it was refunded to your wallet so it was all done by like the node monkeys team so like if you bid at the very beginning they cleared at a price of like 0.03 bitcoin then they would just like they would give you like whatever you got worth or like whatever bitcoin you put in you'd get them many mfts and if there was like an odd number out they would just refund it to you but this was super good for Bitcoin because the transactions are so slow and it let it kept it from being like a spammed or gamed mint where just a bunch of bots set up and like spiked the ordinal fee really high and just like ruined the minting experience in the distribution. So because of the Dutch auction method that they used, I think it really helped the the overall mechanics of node monkeys on secondary markets
3: i do think that there's something to be said at least like from a perception perspective of like nfts on bitcoin just because like bitcoin is seen as like a limited supply token then you think about like nfts on bitcoin uh then you like perceive them as like even more like limited you know like it's really hard to inscribe an nft on bitcoin especially one with like a earlier set and i think that kind of shows in like the minor revenue right um if you take a look at our bitcoin dashboard on our fantastic analytics product minor revenue from total transaction fees has hit a monthly all-time high it's hit a high of 336.1 million in fees compared to the previous all-time high of 251.4 percent and Most importantly, if you look at the percentage breakdown in minor revenue, right, Um, in the month of December, transaction fees made up roughly 21.5% of minor revenue, whereas in the previous all-time high, that was only 14.7% of total minor revenue. And now ordinals make up 5.7% of minor revenue. And just like... At least on WeChat, it seems like China's pretty heavily invested in the Bitcoin and Ordinal ecosystem. You're seeing a lot of like VCs investing in Ordinal's infrastructure, whether that's AMMs or sort of like lending protocols or just like projects. It really seems like this is a personal thesis, but I feel like it's like a Bitcoin miner super cycle. Whereas for a sustained period of time, you are going to see a very significant amount of transaction fees generated on Bitcoin, right? For example, in December, I think Bitcoin generated more transaction fees than Ethereum by like quite a large amount. And I would not be surprised if there were a few months where that also happened again in 2024. And I don't think a lot of people are pricing that in. If you look at one of those like ecosystem maps of like Bitcoin, L2s, ordinals, inscriptions, whatever, like that has exploded in like the past few months
0: yeah and an interesting data point there is like the the price to inscribe inscriptions is just going to keep going up and to inscribe ten thousand profile pictures now i saw a stat and it was like it it would cost like upwards of like five million dollars to create a collection that big so there's like historical significance of being you know the first part of the hundred or the first 100k inscriptions back when it was affordable and like it's going to place a limit on, you know, is it worthwhile for me to try to launch an inscription collection?
2: Yeah. I think that, that takeaway right there is super, super bullish. Something that I I actually mentioned that like a month ago or something when I was thinking, they were talking about like ocean mining, like, I guess, uh, censoring out some ordinal transactions. And I was like, well, then I guess maybe it's bullish because you won't be able to inscribe anymore, but this is like the same effect. So I totally agree with you, Pibbles. Um, And I think that's maybe a reason why, uh, Udi and a couple of the others who are behind Taproot Wizards actually raised some money. I think maybe they had to inscribe in a more high fee environment than some of these earlier collections that reserved their inscription spots before the craze actually hit. So that's, I think that's something we'll see more of like NFT projects and communities raising
1: to to launch project and inscribe on Bitcoin. Two more bullish things while we're at it. ETF is just net positive for all of Bitcoin as a whole. And the happening is about in about ninety six days. I mean, it's really really hard not to be very excited about about this year as a whole. Um, Rena, I love the stats you brought there. I was trying to share screen and walk the uh, the viewers through. Uh, but if you're listening to this podcast, that was uh, another another great way to kind of get that information. It's really insane to see the the growth and uh, what these transaction fees are actually doing to benefit uh the the miners and honestly the long-term sustainability of this chain i am really excited to see this new era spur further innovation for bitcoin i personally don't think that ordinals are the be-all end-all but i think what it's the most exciting thing that it's doing uh is actually bringing the idea of innovation back to crypto and i think you're gonna see the the era of l2s kind of come back and i guess that kind of segues pretty nicely sam uh into your hot seat cool throne
2: Yeah, I'm stealing a little bit of Effort Capital's uh, thunder here. He tweeted the other day about stacks, but I've got STX in the cool throw and it's up 100% over the past 30 days. I have been publicly skeptical of stacks at a technical level, but ignoring all of that, I think it's a very, very good trade. I mean, L2 tokens on ETH have done very, very well. And uh, if you get that L2 narrative exposure, plus the rise of ordinals and and BRC20s, and then you've got, you know, just Bitcoin and the ETF at at large as a huge narrative. And then at the same time, if it's like an altcoin season, I think STX kind of classifies as an alt as well. So I think you kind of get the best of both worlds there. Yeah. And back to what I was saying about what effort pointed out on Twitter, you've got three and a half billion FDV for... Uh, STX versus 15 billion plus for for Arv and OP. So it does seem like a little bit of a narrative violation, in my opinion. And if you download any ordinals wallet, like you've got Xverse and Leather, which was formerly Hero, like a lot of them have native stack support for STX stacking and you know certain dApps within that ecosystem that you can access. So I think that could be a tailwind just if people download Normal's wallet and are dabbling there and then see STX price going up. And then they're like, yeah, hey, maybe I'll throw 500 bucks here, see how stacking works and see that yield and then start using different apps. I think that's pretty promising. And then obviously we have the Nakamoto upgrade coming up, which is going to introduce faster block times for stacks and hopefully less reorgs, as well as an S-Bitcoin derivative. Um, I guess if I would say like another bold take for 2024, I think that Bitcoin related L2s will be the most value hacked in all of crypto, to be honest. Like it's simply just not secure and there's inherent trust assumptions that comes along with it. So definitely be careful with some of them. But that's not to say there's not going to be a ton of money made on Bitcoin L2s this cycle. I'm very, very sure about that. Uh, but yeah, I think SDX is really just the the only way to get Bitcoin L2 exposure, if you will. So I think it's a solid trade.
0: I think it would feel terrible to like watch your, your Bitcoin app get exploited on the Bitcoin block explorer because you're sitting there watching like in this 20 minute eternity long transaction, like, damn, all my money is disappearing in here and there's nothing I can do to stop it
1: counterpoint as a developer you get you get 10 minute gaps to try to stop the next ex- exploit. so but then again i guess on like an l2 uh you could still get like rugged on something native to an l2 on, at a much quicker rate but it'll be interesting to see what comes of this because i'm uh, admittedly not as cut up as i'd like to be on the bitcoin l2 side of things um but it, like my understanding is you can't really get the type Uh, you need an opcode change to, to really bring true L2s to Bitcoin uh, and the OG maxis are, are just going to stand in the way of that. So I think we're probably going to get a a block size wars V2 based around like, can we support L2s unless somebody comes in and figures out a new way uh, of getting a real trustworthy L2 or trustless L2 um, onto Bitcoin. And that, I don't know i I need to get more cultured into the the bitcoin l2 side of things i personally wrote it off because i came to crypto because i thought smart contracts were just super super interesting Uh, and like not having that functionality was what just made me spend attention elsewhere elsewhere but yeah i don't know it'll be interesting to see if this can turn from a narrative to reality
3: i do think bitcoin ux still has an insane amount of work to do i think that thread between Udi and someone else like trying to pay his invoice was the funniest thing I've read in quite some time. Just like the amount of pain that he had to go through to get like one simple invoice uh, paid. But I do think it gets better over the cycle. And like, I don't think Bitcoin is going to have like a thriving like DeFi ecosystem in the long run. And if anything, you could say like how much of a pain Bitcoin is today If anything, it could be like quite bullish, especially for like NFTs, because it means like people are lazy, it's hard to get. Um, So, yeah.
2: I agree with you, Ren. That is Lightning specific, like that Eric Wall thread that you're talking about. So, like, I think he's like super bullish on the idea of scaling Bitcoin, like, you know, eventually. And he's kind of behind the Taproot Wizards movement, but... I think he was just pointing out like yeah lightning is like simply a failed project like we need to stop spending development resources around bitcoin on like supporting this movement because it simply doesn't work Uh, but i definitely agree with you red and then i guess a counterpoint to my hacks thesis would be i don't really know where you would go with just native bitcoin had you hacked like a bridge to an l2 or something like that like there's like most of the time in ethereum you know you've got tornado cash or like some other app that like just a bunch of different idios like syncrasies and things you can do with it to make it harder to track like with bitcoin you're literally just stuck in a utxo and like you you're just yeah i don't know what you would do with that so maybe that's bullish uh, dormant bitcoin supply
1: well recent trends would indicate that you'd take it through Thorchain back to ethereum and then go do something with it but in that case we see the opposite where exploit on ethereum use Train to get to bitcoin where you can wash it through mixers and um, presumably you take those mixers onto the the now mixed bitcoin into a sex uh and then either i don't i have no idea if we tend to see those outflows to go into like dollars or if once you're in a sex then you you know flip into bitcoin or like from bitcoin back into eth uh, and then you take your eth back on, on on chain i have no idea what that looks like um but Unfortunately, Thorchain is has historically played a fairly key role in moving between those two ecosystems. That makes sense actually.
2: I, I did not think about that. I'd be surprised if like a Bitcoin mixer, like specifically like a, a peer-to-peer mixer would be like able to handle the capacity of like a large hack, but but yeah, I mean, Thorchain obviously has the liquidity and the volume to to support quite a bit, so
1: yeah, I don't know shit about the the Bitcoin mixers. I presume they're pretty good because for whatever reason, we tend to see hacks move to Bitcoin and through those mixers. Um, I would assume that they're like a centralized uh, entity that kind of plays that role. So you're taking that risk if you're the exploiter. But then again, like, you know, if you lose half your stolen funds, you still have half of the stolen funds, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough about security to make smart opinions here. Um, so maybe that's a good point to get off of this conversation uh, and I'll jump to my hot seat, Cool Throne, which I've spent a lot of time in this Celestia data over the past couple of weeks. I built out a dashboard for blockers research users. Uh, we'll go ahead and show it here. Uh, I'll share a screen and, and add it to this uh, stream for the viewers rather than the listeners, but I'll, of course, talk through this as we go through it as well um i really don't know if this is a hot seat or cool throne i'm still like out on it everything in my body wants it to be a cool throne but i'm struggling so i'll walk through it so celestia is a purpose-built blockchain specifically to be a data availability later or essentially to allow other chains to post their data onto celestia for very very cheap Um, so whereas ethereum is very expensive but the largest da layer celestia is trying to like basically undercut the market and make a significantly cheaper place for rollups to uh, post data to which ultimately allows them to scale so in the l2 or the roll up fee model the user pays the amount it costs to settle that track trans or to post that transaction for a da plus some additional like execution based fee uh, and so the the cost it actually costs the the cost it it uh, that comes back to the role to actually post that, gets passed directly to the user. So that really is like a variable cost uh, in what ultimately increases the transaction fees to users. The execution side of things, you can have you know a little more customization around um, and there's different implementations you could use to get that lower. So Celestia is really focused on cutting down the first half of that uh, cost structure for users. And Celestia is able to do this through what's called like data availability sampling. I am not going to give an attempt to explain that in depth. It's really honestly something that should be used for a whole podcast. And we've actually had Nick white on our show before, and he's done a phenomenal job explaining that vision. Um, And that's probably the two of the biggest PowerPoints for uh, Celestia is the strength of the team and the pursuit of a single vision. You know, they've really created the modular thesis as a whole and now that's all anybody will talk about. So I really am excited about the team uh, and the direction that they're pushing. Uh, so if we get into a little bit of the data, Ethereum sees about 700 megabytes of data get posted to it per day by somewhere between 15 or so roll-ups. Uh, some of those are much larger than the other ones, with the the most data-rich rollups being being uh, Linea, surprisingly, and the ZK Sync, Arbitrum, and OP Mainnet in no particular order. Those are just, I believe, the top four. Um And so for a context, like a single rollup, like Arbitrum per se, it posts about 120 megabytes of data per day. And so right now on Celestia, we're seeing three active namespaces, which are effectively the location uh, where you would post your data. So you get like your own dedicated namespace. I could call my rollup posting to Daniel's namespace, right, or whatever I want. Uh, And so you'll see the namespaces here, you know, some are just hex encoded strings, while others are plain text, like Astroglyph is an inscriptions protocol. Um, Astroglyph actually, for the longest time, was the most posted to data in terms of megabytes, and I'm just realizing that Manta Network, and actual rollup, has now flipped that, so that's kind of good to see. And so we've only seen meaningful activity from about four role or four namespaces. We don't know what this two, four, one, zero is, or this eight, zero, eight, zero, eight, zero, eight, zero, because they elected to not use a plain text namespace. So this is a plead to all developers to not hate data and allow us to know what you're doing. Um, you know, I've, I've confirmed this with the Manta team, that this is indeed their namespace. That's the only reason I know it's Manta. Um, but you know, Manta network would have sufficed as a namespace. I'm just saying. Um, but nonetheless, we've only really seen adoption from about four roll-ups or protocols uh, in general. And you'll notice that they've paid pretty varying fees. So for 400 megabytes of data, Manta has paid 101 TIA, whereas Astroglyphs posted not much less at 340 megabytes, but only six TIA, which is a massive discrepancy. Um, it turns out that because of Celestia's fee model, it's a first price auction. So think Ethereum before EIP 1559 was implemented and the base fee gave you this one number to pay to get in the block. Uh, TIA is very much so, you know, you take every transaction in the mempool, you rank, sort them on fees and whoever fits in the block gets in the block. Um, and so that what that does is it creates the inefficiency for a bidding war if the block is to be full. Uh, and even in the case of no bidding war, you can overpay and that's like perfectly possible. Uh, and Manta is unfortunately appears to be doing that. They're paying about 12, 11 or 12 times too high of a fee. Um, and so I don't know if that kind of comes out in Caldera, which is their the role as a service provider who they like kind of built through. I don't know if it's a issue on Caldera's end. I don't know if that's an issue on Manta's end or somewhere in the in between, but it is interesting to see how that's kind of played out. And so right now we're seeing about 30 to 50 megabytes of data get posted per day. Uh, and again, for context, Ethereum, sees about 700. And it's kind of when EIP, uh, what is it, 4844, which is like the proto-dank sharding uh, EIP, when that goes live, Ethereum will then support a max of 5,400 uh, 5, megabytes per day. And to compare that to Celestia, who's again kind of built around this idea of abundance rather than scarcity, um, Celestia offers today 46,000 and 80 megabytes per day so again it's about even after eip 4844 goes live uh celestia is about 10 times more available or has more data availability uh service or space or bandwidth uh than ethereum does so that ultimately allows celestia to be dirt cheap even though mantis paying like 10x 11x too much Uh, for their fees, it is still insanely cheaper. Like I'm talking 99% cheaper to post to Celestia than it is to post to Ethereum mainnet today. And so when EIP 4844 goes live, you know, there's going to be a meaningful transaction cost reduction, but it is not 99%. 99% gets you to a point where you can get subset transactions for rollups. And that is ultimately going to be a massive driver for adoption uh, when rollups do come live, you know, this is where I kind of start to become skeptical of like how like how sustainable is this demand going to be because what Celestia has absolutely nailed and just done so so right is integrate with Rollup as a service providers or places that you allow to like one click deploy a new chain so they're integrated with Astria Dimension Conduit and Caldera that I can name off the top of my head uh, they're also have the ability to you like if you launch through an Arbitrum Orbit train. The OP stack or a polygon SDK chain, or sorry, CDK chain, you can launch on Celestia. If you want a Sovereign rollup, I think these are still pretty actively in development, but RollKit and the Sovereign SDK can both be built using Celestia. Uh, And then even more custom rollups can still also build their own implementation for uh, Celestia. So something like Argus or Eclipse. That is a lot of different ways to build something that ends up posting data onto Celestia. And I've poked around with some of the rollups that these rollups as a service providers are enabling. And I'm going to be completely honest. They look like terrible. There's like nothing net new. It is just like building an app for the sake of building an app. And now this time, instead of it being a set of smart contracts, it's a rollup because it's really easy to do. And that's great but I don't necessarily consider that like really, really sustainable demand and Celestia needs a ton of demand. So for them to max out their current uh, bandwidth of about 46,000 megabytes per day, you know, they need about 65 times the amount of data getting posted to it than Ethereum sees today. And I'm not saying that's impossible, but I am questioning like where that demand's going to come from. You know, is it high TPS general purpose chains? Is it like an army of app specific rollups that we're kind of seeing through these RAS providers you know, does some of those actually get users and adoption and continued use. You know, is it going to be gaming focused chains? That's kind of where my head's at is it'll probably be the, the combination of high throughput chains um, that can just be the best rollups today. And some of a lot of that rollup activity shifts to these chains because it's cheaper and more things can be done there. Um, and then gaming, I think it makes a lot of sense because gaming seems to be a good fit for roll apps, right? Like if I'm building a, a decentralized exchange, a roll app doesn't do me any good because I need to be where my liquidity is. And that's not a problem you have with something like gaming where, you know what, I want my own environment. I don't want the noisy neighbor problem and I don't need composability. So gaming kind of seems like it's a potential fit here, Um, but it is interesting to see. So even if you play this out on a long enough time horizon, say that it does get that 65X Ethereum's current data activity. All right, well, now we're maxing out our current block size, which can be scaled, but let's just, Take that out of the equation for now at forty six thousand megabytes per day uh, the fees are still quite small I would say you know they're around five million dollars per day or annualized excuse me if you hit forty six thousand megabytes per day you're, you're, the chain generates about five million in fees. Five million is just simply not enough to justify the current valuation of you know 13, 14, 15 billion. uh so that's where you know you start to kind of struggle like okay. That The fees kind of starts to break down over the long enough time horizon, but will there be external demand for this token? They're really trying to push the idea of using TIA to bootstrap your roll-ups and getting this token into the ecosystem and into the hands of users. And like that is something that materially could uh, play out, and I, I wouldn't necessarily bet against. Uh, that. The idea of modular money I think is super ba- valuable for the Cosmos ecosystem as a whole. That's something they've been trying to do with Atom, hasn't really panned out. So TIA is kind of like round two at that. You know, you're already seeing material demand for the token through this airdrop narrative that is playing out in real time, as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. So I am definitely intrigued and excited about Celestia. There's just nothing that I can point to right now that is like, oh, this will be the definitive source of demand for DA going forward. Now, that's not to say that, like, just because I can't point to it right now, I think it's a failed project or something crazy like that. Like, that is not what I'm saying at all um i'm just really I'm, I'm really glad that you know we have this dashboard available to watch the growth in real time and see what drives it because you know if we do see gaming coming in and just posting a shit ton of data like it might and then that'd be great to, to have that data point and then be like okay no gaming you know i i do believe in gaming as a whole long term and i do think it makes sense to bring some of that on chain so that would be like a very strong indicator to me that this actually might work out so i know i've rambled a lot but i'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on slashio or its viability i think just a few random thoughts i've never really
3: thought about this question but like how much economic security does a data availability layer need i mean like it's hard to quantify uh i'm not sure if i have like any framework for it at all, but say if you had to put a number to it, it would be less than the amount of economic security that Ethereum, the base protocol, has, right? And and you could make an argument for given the amount of economic security that Celestia provides, which of course is highly, highly dependent on the price of Celestia, then maybe Celestia... Isn't charging enough for people to post their data to Celeste, even though they have this like abundant amount of room for people to post data, right? But then on the other hand, you sort of like have this, this like techno optimist view, right? A future with technology should be a future with abundance. Everything should be abundant everything should be cheap. Humans shouldn't have to work because the cost of producing everything is so cheap and we just get everything for free. There's like infinite amount of energy from like 10 billion nuclear reactors out there. And I think that's kind of like the other side of the argument that you're seeing, right? Like DA should be cheap because that enables like this Cambrian explosion of like innovation and new use cases to be built on a blockchain. And I do think it's like fairly hard to balance those two, right? On one hand, you do want a chain that's like generating profit because at some point, like you're not going to hold Tia unless you have a reason to. And your reason to is probably because like Tia or Celestia as a chain is making money unless we just get our jobs for the next like 50 years, which I don't think is happening. And so trying to balance like the revenue generated by the network, but also like sort of like the constraints that you would. Sort of like a uh, face as a developer building on celestia like i'm I'm not sure what the best answer is to be honest, you know, like it's kinda a similar argument, kinda kinda to like Solana, you know like Solana generates like no revenue today, but then like if you like ten x or like hundred the fees, like there are certain like applications that just don't work on um Solana, like mostly on chain central demo order books. So I don't know, maybe there's a future where Celestia is able to sort of like price discriminate more between like people paying uh people posting data on a Celestia. I have no clue what that looks like. But definitely like the valuation is hard to justify today. Even if you like do some like hand wavy magic, extrapolate some crazy growth rate. <laughs> It's still, like, pretty hard. But I do have to agree with you, then that I think, like, Solessa has nailed the narrative, right? Like, the whole, like, modular money thing and, like, some influencers starting the whole, like, if you stick Tia, like, you're going to get, like, infinite amount of airdrops over the next cycle. They have nailed that. Whereas a lot of other sort of, like, infrastructure protocols, they struggle with, like, people try to, like, understand the technology and try to compare it to it. And, like, they try to, like, dive deep into, like, certain, like, security or, like, architecture decisions. Whereas Celestia, like, no one's thinking about, like, oh, my God, is, like, data availability sampling as good as, like, data availability scaling? How good is, like, 2D erasure coding and, like, the Reed Solomon algorithm? They're just like, yo, I'm going to long module the money. So I think they've nailed that part.
2: I very much agree with, like, the super strong brand, Dren, and, like, it just takes me back to 2020. I fumbled like a massive bag of Solana and the only investment thesis I had, I didn't know even 1% of what I knew today. It was just, I used the chain and it was good. And I did the same thing with Argus. I was like, wow. And granted, Dan, you pointed out that's on testnet, but I'm really, really excited to try one of these Celestia DA based chains that is like actually on mainnet and feel like how smooth it actually is. Because at the end of the day, I do think a lot of it comes down to just, is this product good? And I think that... Tia and Celestia are directly competing with Ethereum. They try and come off as like more Ethereum aligned uh, by, you know, integrating with like the OP stack by having the option to plug that in and then, you know, having these nice diagrams that have Ethereum in them all the time and like how Ethereum still has a role in in the settlement part of things. But I do think that you're basically buying a Ethereum competitor at, you know, one one hundredth of the valuation in terms of circulating market cap. So, Throwing the airdrops as candy on top, and I really like the trade for this cycle. I think it's going to perform extremely well. I would just say that the biggest threat will probably be EigenDA, obviously, whenever that's actually live. Um, but I do think there's going to be a fair amount of projects that don't necessarily want to be aligned with, you know, Ethereum alignment. Like I think some people do want to be more aligned with just Celestia modularity and that brand as a whole. So I think there's room for both for sure, but. It's going to be interesting to see play out. No, I have no opinion, Dan, on uh, the longevity of the business model. I think fundamentals in a bull market are kind of bearish because it ties price down to realizations.
1: Yeah, yeah. And honestly, to add one point to Ren's Solana comparison, Solana is iterating on their fee model right now. And that will probably, the result will probably be low fees are maintained. Uh, but the mili- the ability to upcharge when necessary is is uh, improved upon because right now that exists, but it's a, you know, it's a little bit unreliable if you will. Uh, And so because of that, it's like, okay, yeah, no, like, you know, they've built, a, they built a chain with low fees, got a shit ton of users. People are actually building useful things on there. Uh, and now they're thinking about the the economics behind it. Not a bad way to do it. And I don't think that's something Celestia can't do, right? Everybody uses you for DA, figure out a new pricing model where you can maintain the fact that, you know, you pitched everybody on a low fee chain, a DA service, you still need to keep that, but upcharge when it's where possible and when possible. Um, I don't. I think Celestia can vertically integrate and do a couple more things. I, I think that'd be an improved offering, and I think there's no harm in starting where they are today to get to that point. Um, and I also think there's a huge conversation around to be had around the value of settlement and versus the value of DA and kind of where the value accrues in general to these different chains. But maybe I'll leave that as a teaser for next week's episode as, as something we can we can jam on because I, I I do think we need probably a whole segment to talk about that. So thank you guys for listening. Another banger episode. Appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, and to the listeners, we will be with you again next week. Hey, everyone. Thanks for watching
3: today's X Research episode. I wanted to take a second and remind you about an upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in london this march seats are limited so hit the link in the description and use the promo code 0x10 to save 10 percent on tickets see you
1: in london